It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. When even the commissioner of the NFL is working at home, you know America is being shut down. Look, uh, next week, I guess, is the NFL draft. I mean, who knows when the season will start or what the situation will be with the virus. But Roger Goodell, it's now being reported, is going to announce the selections from his house. He lives in Westchester County, uh, north of New York City, and he's not going to the, you know, usually I guess it's a big TV show on ESPN or on NBC, whatever. It's not going to happen that way. And the um, league has lined up 58 of the players who are eligible to be in the draft. I guess these would be presumed to be the top picks. And they will also participate in an ESPN broadcast. Yes, on ESPN, but Goodell's not going to Bristol, Connecticut, where the sports network is located. They're going to be, everyone will be home, be like a big Hollywood Squares thing, kind of like every newscast that you see now. Meanwhile, woke up this morning uh, to get the news from Good Morning America that George Stephanopoulos has tested positive for COVID-19. Now, this is not a complete shock because, as you'll recall, if you are a loyal listener to this podcast, or maybe you saw this elsewhere, but his wife, uh, author, comedian, actress, Allie Wentworth, uh, tested positive for the virus a couple of weeks ago. She's quarantining at home. He's doing GMA from home. So it certainly wouldn't be unheard of for him to get it. What Stephanopoulos told viewers uh, today, uh, A, A, it was no surprise, but B, that he doesn't have any symptoms. He says, quote, I've never had a fever, never had chills, never had a headache, never had a cough, never had shortness of breath. I'm feeling great. His wife, not so much. Uh, but nevertheless, I guess he thought it prudent to get tested. And now he has the virus. And uh, that I suppose it means that eventually he will have the symptoms. And maybe he'll have to take some time off. I mean, this is kind of cutting a swath uh, through the media world, Chris Cuomo on CNN, Jedediah Bila on, on Fox News, now Stephanopoulos uh, and others uh, that I haven't mentioned. Plus, all you know, producers and behind the scenes folks um, all coming down with the virus. Well, I want to devote a lot of time to these first couple of stories because I want to talk about this very detailed and documented story that popped in yesterday's New York Times about the Trump administration's delays for a crucial six weeks in gearing up to battle the coronavirus, which the president is already denouncing as fake news. We'll get to that. And I also want to talk about, for the first time, I've stayed away from talking about this, not because I didn't want to talk about it, because nobody that I saw had done sufficient reporting on the allegation, a 25-year-old allegation of sexual assault against Joe Biden. Uh, by a woman who briefly worked on his Senate staff. Uh, and the Times, on the same day, Sunday, that publishing uh, what, what Trump supporters are interpreting, unfairly in my view, as an anti-Trump piece, also publishing this piece about Biden. We also learned that the Washington Post investigated the allegations against Biden, but did not publish them until today. So all of this is sort of a fascinating uh, lesson or series of lessons in how journalism is practiced in this um, uh, heavily polarized era that we all live in, one heightened by, of course, the life and death stakes of the ravages of the coronavirus. So let's get into it. Story number one. We'll start, before I even get to the Times and the Post, we'll start with the Trump Twitter and Anthony Fauci. So what happened is that Fauci, you know, who, a guy who I have to remind people who are criticizing him from the right, was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom by George W. Bush, uh, whose service to our government on infectious diseases goes back to the mid-80s under Ronald Reagan. In any event, 
Fauci was on CNN's State of the Union with uh, Jake Tapper, and he was asked about, you know, could a stronger, earlier response by the Trump administration have had an impact on the uh, coronavirus spread? And Fauci said, obviously, it would have been nice if we had a better head start. But I don't think you can say that we are where we are right now because of one factor. It's very complicated. Um, I want to give you the exact language, so I give you the full context. Um, because look, what Fauci is saying is obvious. You can't dispute it. It's not a pro-Trump or an anti-Trump thing. We took too long as a country to institute the school shutdowns, the social distancing, the work-at-home, the stay-at-home orders. Some of that was the governor's. Anyway, here's what Fauci said. You know, Jake, uh, it's, it's the what would have, what could have. It's very difficult to go back and say that. I mean, obviously, you could logically say that if you had a process that was ongoing and you started mitigation earlier, you could have saved lives. Obviously, no one is going to deny that, says Dr. Fauci. But what goes into those kind of decisions is complicated. But you're right. I mean, obviously, if we had right from the very beginning shut everything down, it may have been a little bit different. That's um, just reality. Uh, But he has said in other interviews and in this interview that it wasn't crystal clear at the time that this was going to become a pandemic that would spread in such heavy, well, we have a half million cases now, to the United States of America. Um, and so you have the president now, and you you could see this coming because Fauci, you know, is the most trusted doctor in America right now. He's maybe be the most trusted man in America right now. And you could see uh, Trump uh, starting to resent some of what he is saying. So the president uh, says uh, he what he did was he retweeted a criticism by a former Republican congressional candidate who got like 18% against Nancy Pelosi, uh, saying Fauci should be fired, some sort of hashtag, fire Fauci, right? Uh, Sorry, it's fake news. It's all on tape, says Trump. I banned China long before people spoke up. Thank you, OAN, One America Network News. Uh, Trump was on a tear yesterday. He also uh, took a shot at Chris Wallace. What the hell is happening at Fox News? It's a whole new ball game over there. I'll get into what he said about the Times in a moment. Uh, I don't think Fauci is trying to deliberately go out and um, and undermine the president. But he was asked a question, and I think he gave the only honest answer. He doesn't say we should have done this. He says it was complicated. He doesn't say the president fell down on the job. He's going out of his way not to criticize the president. But had we, as a country, as an administration, um, taken these more drastic steps earlier, of course, of course fewer people would have died. Um, so, uh, yes, it was fire Fauci is the hashtag from Deanna Lorraine who, oh, I, I totally overstated. I misread this. She got 1.8% of the vote in a primary challenge to Nancy Pelosi, not 18%. So she's a fringe candidate. Anyway, she's been given quite a platform by the president of the United uh, States story here notes that, uh, uh, president had stepped in to stop Fauci to answering a question about the effectiveness of hydro of hydroxychloroquine, uh, the unproven drug that the president has been touting. Uh, Fauci has just said, look, it's not proven. He's not saying people shouldn't experiment on it, people shouldn't try it, but he's urging caution. That is his job. All right, story number two. I'll start with the Trump tweet because the Times story is very detailed. New York Times story is a fake, just like the, quote, paper itself. 
Trump says, I was criticized for moving too fast when I issued the China ban. That is true. He was called xenophobic. He deserves credit for taking that step. But it's one step he took, a lot of other steps that he didn't take, long before other, most others wanted to do so. Uh, Alex Azar, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, told me nothing until later. I'll get into Azar in a moment. And Pino Navarro, I talked about his memo last week, was same as banned. See his statements. Fake news. All right. So what gives this New York Times story great strength is that it is it is built mostly on internal emails and memos and other documents uh, to back up uh, the claim, the contention of the reality, in my view, uh, that uh, the president was too slow to react during those six crucial weeks. Now, because we're so polarized, if you're a, a Trump supporter or conservative, you say, oh, the Times is just out to get him. And I spoke on the air yesterday, a media buzz, you know, was preempted by the Easter special, but I came on the next hour and I said, the media onslaught against Donald Trump has been unbelievably negative. And I cited examples like the Boston Globe saying he has blood on his hands. But then I talked about, you know, him following a strategy of denouncing the White House reporters who, in my view, are asking legitimate questions. Some think they're gotcha questions. What I say is, even if they are gotcha questions, he's the president of the United States. Of course, he has to answer uh, difficult questions. In any event, there was a movie back in the 80s with Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen called Red Dawn. Uh, And that became the nickname for the email chain that this high-level administration group was building. They had Red Dawn Breaking, Red Dawn Rising, Red Dawn Breaking Bad. And then as the situation grew worse, Red Dawn, Dawn Raging. So... Here are some facts, as reported by the New York Times. This, this is not, in my view, a partisan attack, which is not to say the Times has always been fair. Donald Trump, certainly the columnists, have savaged him, and they're not the only ones. Okay, the National Security Office, uh, responsible for tracking pandemics, received intelligence reports in early January, predicting the spread of the virus to the U.S. The January 29th memo, I talked about this last week, Peter Navarro, he's not a doctor, he's not a scientist, he's an economist, he's the president's trade advisor. But he wrote a memo on January 29th, and then another one uh, on January, uh, February 23rd, but the January 29th memo, Navarro laid out in absolute detail the fact that America would be defenseless against a pandemic, that hundreds of thousands of Americans could die if action were not taken and there would be trillions of dollars in economic losses. Now, according to the, the president addressed this at one of his pressers and he said, I never saw that memo. I never saw either memo. What the Times is reporting is that Navarro was sort of a controversial figure within administration. He, uh, um, you know, was seen as a kind of a hothead on certain issues. And so um, when the president was told by aides about the Navarro memo, um, the president dismissed it and he said uh, he was upset, he told aides, that Navarro had put this on paper. Here, here's the line I was looking for. Uh, he was widely seen as quick-tempered, self-important, and prone to butting in. He's an outspoken hawk against China. That's part of what the memo was about. And it's true, the president acted on China. No question about it. Trump responded that he was unhappy. Mr. Navarro had put his warning into writing. As for Alex Azar, um, there was a whole plan for Azar and other administration officials to go to Trump um, and warn him about how bad things might get. So what happened is, according to this uh, Time story, um, there was a whole plan uh, to uh, confront him. 
But then one, a, a top health executive jumped the gun and publicly issued a warning uh, about this. Um, there was a high-level meeting February 14th. I'm going to go back and forth here as I scroll through this. Uh, with the NSC, uh, the Times got a look at the agenda. It was titled U.S. Government Response to 2019 Novel Coronavirus. Uh, it talked about school closures, widespread stay-at-home directions from the public, nearly 100% telework for some. Uh, didn't advocate an immediate national shutdown. But they never got the chance to present this because on February 25th, Dr. Nancy Messonnier director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases, publicly issued a blunt warning. And Trump didn't like that. And he thought on the 18-hour plane ride home from wherever he was, Trump fumed as he watched the stock market crash as a result of those comments. Furious, he called Azar uh, when he landed at 6 a.m. He said that uh, Messonnier was scaring people unnecessarily. Uh, Azar was already on thin ice with the president. So he was, and soon he would be downgraded. He was no longer in charge of the task force response. That went to Vice President Pence. Also, Azar was, had a call with Trump. Trump was on, the president was on Air Force One. This was on January 30th. And it was during that call that uh, Azar tried to make the case, and this was the second time in two weeks he tried to make the case to the president, um, that uh, there was... Um, uh, need for drastic action here. But the president told him that he was being alarmist, that he was panicking. So just there are a lot of opportunities here for the administration to take further action. I just want to take a step back and say the following. If Obama had been president, if anybody else had been president, there would have been missteps. There would have been bureaucratic slowness, given the fact the magnitude of this virus. There's just no way that in two or three days, you know, any president was going to order a natural shutdown or encourage governors to do so, to encourage national distancing. I mean, it just wasn't clear what was going to happen. So it's not everything Trump did can't be faulted. He did the right thing with regard to China. But to argue on the basis of these emails, these memos, these agenda uh, items that, that Trump took action as soon as he could is just wrong. It's not an anti-Trump comment to say that, although the president finds it convenient to say, well, it's the press is out to get me and so forth, when a lot of the press is out to get him. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, story number three, the Joe Biden situation. Uh, so what you had is, here's the New York Times story that ran yesterday. And what you had is a woman named Tara Reed. She was a staff assistant in Biden's office uh, for about eight months. She told the Times in a series of news that back in 1993, and you may have heard this elsewhere, Biden pinned her to a wall in a Senate building, reached under her clothing, and penetrated her with his fingers. Really unmistakable allegation of sexual assault. Now, on her side is the following, according to the Times. A friend said that Tara Reid told the details of the allegation, told her the details of the allegation at the time. Another friend and Reid's brother said she told them over the years about a traumatic sexual incident involving Joe Biden. Now, in fairness to the former vice president, a spokeswoman uh, said uh, this was absolutely false, that this never happened. Um... And the people in interviews, and this is the this is the worst part for Tara Reid, and I want to be very careful here. I'm not taking sides because I don't know what happened. It's 25 years ago. And, of course, the media should investigate this. 
just as they did the 40-year-old allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, just as they did allegations against Donald Trump himself, which are mentioned uh, in both the Times and the Post story. So last year, Reed came forward with several other women, women to accuse Biden of kissing her, hugging her, or touching her in ways that made her uncomfortable, but she didn't make the allegation, uh, the most serious allegation about the sexual penetration. And um, look, there's simply no question. Biden himself has acknowledged and admitted that he got too close to too many women, made them feel uncomfortable with the things he said, with the hugs. Uh, there's no dispute about that. But this uh, would be assault. It would be in a whole uh, different category. What the Times says is that no other allegation about sexual assault surfaced in the course of its reporting, nor did any other former Biden staff members corroborate any detail of Tara Reid's allegation. The Times found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Biden. This goes to the question of credibility. Last Thursday, Reid filed a, a police report with the Washington, D.C. cops saying she was the victim of sexual assault in 1993. That report didn't name Biden. I don't know why. Uh, but she felt she needed to get it uh, on the record somehow. Now, political motivation. Uh, Well, obviously, she used to like Joe Biden. Even in 2017, she tweeted something positive about Biden. But once this campaign got underway, she, Tara Reid, became a big supporter of Bernie Sanders. And um, she originally favored Marianne Williamson. She gave her five bucks. She favored Elizabeth Warren. And then she finally settled on Bernie. While she was supporting Bernie was when she started to go public against Biden. Um, now she says that she complained to top aides, Ted Kaufman, who's probably Biden's closest Senate aide over the years, or one of them, and Dennis Toner. In an interview, Kaufman, a longtime friend of Biden's, who was his chief of staff at the time, said, I did not know her. She did not come to me. If she had, I would have remembered her. So he's denying any conversation whatsoever, direct contradiction of Tara Reid's account. Dennis Toner, interviewed by the Times, worked for Biden for over three decades says, um, you know, look, there were other senators and who's uh, had reputations among their staffs for harassing women and partying after hours. Biden, he says, was known for racing to catch the train to get home to his family in Wilmington every night. Quote from Toner, it's just so preposterous that Senator Biden would be faced with these allegations. He was the deputy chief of staff. I don't remember her. I don't remember this conversation. And I would remember this conversation. So she doesn't have corroboration from these key people. When she quotes Biden as saying, he pointed his finger at me and said, you're nothing to me. Uh, This after uh, said, hey, come on, man, I heard you like me when she obviously pulled away from what she says was his um, attack on her. Uh, Now, interestingly, the Washington Post today reports that it had been investigating Tara Reid's allegation over the past three weeks. She had made this allegation public on a podcast. Here's the fascinating part, because the Post decided not to publish. The Post has interviewed Reid on multiple occasions, both this year and last. So the Post talked to this woman last year. But look, the Post has a long history uh, um, with with going back to Bob Packwood in 1992, a senator who serially harassed a whole bunch of women. The Post broke that story. Uh, Obviously, other stories, obviously stories about Trump, the Access Hollywood tape. And then, you know, there was just the, the stories uh, uh, in Alabama. That's why Doug Jones won the election, uh, the stories against the incumbent senator there. So the Post has interviewed Reid on multiple occasions, as well as people she says told her, she told of the assault claim. 
Uh, Reid said last year, told uh, the Post that Biden had touched her neck and shoulders, but did not mention the alleged assault or suggest there was more to the story. She faulted his staff, reading here from the Washington Post, calling Biden a male of his time, a very powerful senator, and he had people around saying it was okay. So at a minimum, I can say Tara Reid keeps changing her story. She told the Washington Post that certain things happened, but she didn't say that the worst thing happened. And she didn't say that there was more to the story that she was holding back. What she says now is, quote, I didn't have the courage to come forward about the assault. I couldn't get the words out. As time has progressed, I felt stronger about speaking my truth. I realized I had to do this. Uh, But in the interview, she laid more blame with Biden's staff for bullying her because they later told her it wasn't working out. You got to look for another job. Quote from Tara Reid. This is what I want to emphasize. It's not him. It's the people around him who keep covering for him. So she also said she filed a complaint with the Hill, some office on the Hill. Post couldn't find a copy of that. Reid says she never received a copy. So that's where that stands. All right, story number four, as we move along here. I've spoken on this podcast about my little local grocery store in Maryland where the people are just so dedicated. They show up for work. They have masks. They have gloves. They stay behind plastic shields. They close the store early. It's called Brookville Market. Um... And they spend three hours taking orders from elderly people who can't physically get to the store or are afraid to go to the store, and then they deliver them to their houses. It's incredible. Well, the Washington Post has a story about uh, how many retail employers, uh, employees, excuse me, are risking their lives. At least 41 grocery workers have died so far in this pandemic. Some liken their job to working in a war zone knowing the simple act of showing up for work could ultimately kill them. This includes a Trader Joe's employee in New York, a Safeway worker in Seattle, a pair of Walmart associates near Chicago, and four Kroger employees in Michigan and others. And I'm just thinking, like, you know, let's say all of them just said, we can't do this. We're not going to show up for work. How would any of us get food? I mean, the supermarkets and the grocery stores are sort of the last things that are open. I mean, yes, restaurants provide takeout, but if you want to get staples, you want to get milk, eggs, bread, I mean, these are the people who really are risking their lives, and they're not well-paid. They're not well-paid at all, and they're so dedicated that they show up, not just at my little grocery store, but, you know, they, they show up at Whole Foods, now owned by Jeff Bezos, and they show up at Trader Joe's, and they show up at uh, your Safeway or your Giant or whatever is the big supermarket chain, and I think, I think we owe them such a debt of gratitude. Chains such as Kroger and Safeway have begun providing masks and gloves. Walmart is checking employees' temperature before each shift. Um, a lot of chains have installed these plexigate shield, plexiglass shields at the cash registers. I just think, you know, they are, along with the doctors and the nurses, uh, and the first responders, they are among the unsung heroes, and it's nice to see them get some attention. But I worry about them. When you see 41 deaths, wow, that's scary stuff. And finally, story number five. You know, I sometimes try to end on a little bit of a lighter note. So Saturday Night Live came back live. Well, it wasn't live. It was taped, actually, last Saturday night. And who better to host from his home? Everybody was sort of, you know, doing this from various homes. They weren't all in Studio 8H at 30 Rock in Manhattan. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, who with his wife Rita Wilson, was the first famous person we knew to get the disease, who wrote it out in Australia. He came back and he was funny. Ever since being diagnosed, I have been more like America's dad than ever before, Hanks said, since no one wants to be around me very long and I make people uncomfortable. Uh, and then he talked about, you know, doing SNL, you know, without a lot of the trappings and the uh, the graphics and everything. Is it going to be look a little different than what you used to, he said in the monologue? Yes. Will it be weird to see sketches without big sets and costumes? Sure. 
But will it make you laugh? Eh, it's SNL. There'll be some good stuff, maybe one or two stinkers. You know the drill. And that's pretty uh, um, funny. Um, Also, uh, Larry David uh, made a comeback from wherever he's in seclusion. Uh, doing Bernie Sanders probably one last time. He said, look, he had plenty of toilet paper. Please, I'm a 78-year-old man living in Vermont. I have a whole room full of toilet paper. And by the way, not the good stuff. Single ply. I'm talking prison TP. And then uh, he said, I finally have time to relax and finish the heart attack from October. But my immediate plan is to do anything I can to beat Donald Trump. That's why I'm voting for Joe Biden as enthusiastically as Joe voted for the Iraq War. And then Alec Baldwin called in, playing Trump, calling into one of the shows over the phone. Uh, so, you know, they did a pretty good job of pulling it together. Was it all hysterical? No, from the clips that I've seen online. But uh, Tom Hanks, I mean, you can't, who's hosted the show many, many times, you can't think of a better guy, the perfect person in this era to host SNL when SNL is remote and it's not the Saturday Night Live. And who knows when it will be the Saturday Night Live, funny and unfunny. Uh, that so many of us either love or love to hate or just kind of watch because, you know, we watched when we were growing up. All right, that's it, folks. I hope uh, as this goes on, I hope you had a good weekend. I hope you had a good Easter, that you're having a good Passover if you celebrate that holiday. Uh, I hope you're staying safe. Uh, I hope you're not going crazy. I try to do my part here. Uh, I'll be going to a remote studio later for Fox to be on with Dana Perino. Um, let me just say, we're all in this together. And I think that should be our motto for all the politics and the polarization, whether you're anti-media, whether you're pro-media, whether you're pro-Trump, whether you can't stand Trump. We're Americans. We're all in this together. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.